by me, Lord. What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you? For the kindness you've shown, Lord, help me, Jesus. I've wasted it, so help me. This is our American stories. You're listening to Chris Christopherson singing his own composition. And by the way, we have Chris telling the story of how this song came to be. In our Story of a Song segment, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to it. It'll move you. Christian or not, it'll move you. It's Chris's soul. It's Chris's story he's talking about, after all. And all week long, we're celebrating the Bible because it's National Bible Week. FDR declared it so in 1941, the week of Thanksgiving. And whether you're a Christian or not, a Jew or not, this book... Well, it's helped inform Western civilization and the world, literature, arts, and music. And so today, we're going to focus on a writer named Malcolm Gladwell, who writes for The New Yorker and other literary magazines. And this book in 2013 that was my favorite was a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Here's Malcolm talking about the story of David and Goliath in the Bible and why it had, well, captivated him for most of his life. Ancient Palestine had a, uh, along its eastern border, there's a mountain range, still same is true of Israel today, and in the mountain range are all of the ancient cities of that region. So Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron. Um, And then there's a coastal plain, right, along the Mediterranean, where Tel Aviv is now. And connecting the mountain range with the coastal plain is an area called the Shephala, which is a series of valleys and ridges that run east to west. And you can follow the Shephala, through the, go through the Shephala to get from the coastal plain to the mountains. And the Shephala, if you've been to Israel, you'll know it's just about the most beautiful part of Israel. It's gorgeous with uh, forests of oak and wheat fields and vineyards. And, but more importantly, though, in the history of that region, it's served, it's had a, a, a real strategic function. And that is, it is the means by which hostile armies on the coastal plain find their way, get, get up into the mountains and threaten those living in the mountains. And 3,000 years ago, that's exactly what happens. The Philistines, who are the, the biggest of enemies of the kingdom of Israel, are living in the coastal plain. They're originally from Crete. They're a seafaring people. And they may start to make their way through one of the valleys of the Shephelah up into the mountains, because what they want to do is occupy the highland area right by Bethlehem and split the kingdom of Israel in two. And the kingdom of Israel, which is headed by King Saul, obviously catches wind of this, and Saul brings his army down from the mountains, and he confronts the Philistines in the Valley of Elah, one of the most beautiful of the valleys of the Shephelah. And the Israelites dig in along the northern ridge, and the, uh, the Philistines dig in along the southern ridge, And the two armies just sit there for weeks and stare at each other because they're deadlocked. Neither can attack the other because to attack the other side, you've got to come down 
the mountain into the valley and then up the other side and you're completely exposed. So finally, to break the deadlock, the Philistines send their mightiest warrior down into the valley floor and he calls out and he says to the Israelites, send your mightiest warrior down and we'll have this out, just the two of us. This was a tradition in ancient warfare called single combat. It was a way of settling disputes without incurring the bloodshed of a major battle. And the Philistine who sent down their mighty warrior is a giant. He's six foot nine. Uh, he's outfitted head to toe in this glittering bronze armor. And he's got a sword and he's got a javelin and he's got a spear. He is absolutely terrifying. And he's so terrifying that none of the Israelite soldiers want to fight him. It's a, it's a death wish, right? There's no way they think they can take him. And finally, the only person who will come forward is this young shepherd boy. And he goes up to Saul and he says, I'll fight him. And Saul says, you, Saul says, you can't fight him. That's ridiculous. You're this kid. This is this mighty warrior. But the shepherd is adamant. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I have been defending my flock against uh, lions and wolves for years. I think I can do it. And Saul has no choice. He's got no one else who's come forward. So he says, all right. And then he turns to the kid and he says, but you've got to wear this armor. You can't go as you are. So he tries to give the shepherd his armor, and the shepherd says, no. He says, I, I, I can't wear this stuff. I, I, the biblical verse is, I, have not, I cannot wear this, for I have not proved it. Meaning, I've never worn armor before. You've got to be crazy. So he reaches down instead on the ground and picks up five stones and puts them in his shepherd's bag and starts to walk down the mountainside to meet the giant. And the giant sees this figure approaching and calls out, Come to me so I can feed your flesh to the, to the birds of the heavens and the, and the beasts of the field, right? He issues this kind of taunt towards this person coming to fight him. And the shepherd draws closer and closer. And the giant sees that he's carrying a staff. That's all he's carrying, right? Instead of a weapon, just this shepherd's staff. And he says, am I a, he's insulted. Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks, Right? And the shepherd boy takes one of his stones out of his pocket, puts it in his sling, and whirls it around and lets it fly. And it hits the giant right between the eyes, like right here in his most vulnerable spot. And he falls down, either dead or unconscious. And the shepherd boy runs up and takes his sword and cuts off his head. And the Philistines see this, and they turn, and they just run. <laughs> and, of course, the name of the giant is Goliath. And the name of the shepherd boy is David. And the reason that story has obsessed me over the course of writing my book is that everything I thought I knew about that story turned out to be wrong. Indeed. And we'll find out what was wrong about that story and what was right. You're listening to Malcolm Gladwell, one of the great writers in this country, from Tipping Point to this book, David and Goliath. I'd urge you to pick it up, by the way, at Amazon.com. It's a terrific read. Celebrating the Bible all week long. It's National Bible Week. This is Our American Stories, more of Malcolm Gladwell's story about a biblical story that stuck with him his whole life.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our celebration of National Bible Week. And let's return to Malcolm Gladwell, who had just told the story of David and Goliath. Now he's about to tell you what he got wrong in his understanding of the story in the Bible that stuck with him throughout his entire life. So David in that story is supposed to be the underdog, right? In fact, that term, David and Goliath, has entered our language as a metaphor for improbable victories by some weak party over someone far stronger. Now, why do we call David an underdog? Well, we call him an underdog because he's a kid, little kid, and Goliath is this big, strong giant. We also call him an underdog because uh, Goliath is an experienced warrior, and David is just a shepherd, right? But most importantly, we call him an underdog because all he has is, is giant, is that, is that Goliath is outfitted with all of this modern weaponry, right? This glittering coat of armor and, a, and a, a sword and a javelin and a spear, and all David has is this sling. Well, let's start there with the phrase, all David has is this sling, because that's the first mistake that we make. In ancient warfare, there are three kinds of warriors. There's cavalry, men on horseback and in, with chariots. There is heavy infantry, which are foot soldiers, armed foot soldiers with uh, swords and shields and some kind of armor. And there is artillery. And artillery are archers, but more importantly, slingers. And a slinger is someone who has a leather pouch with two long cords attached to it. And they put a projectile, either a rock or a lead ball, inside the pouch. And they whirl it around like this. And they let one of the cords go. And the effect is to send the projectile forward at, um, uh, towards its target. Right? That's what David has. And it's important to understand that that sling is not a slingshot. It's not this, right? It's not a child's toy. It's, in fact, an incredibly devastating weapon. When David rolls it around like this, he's, he's turning his, uh, the sling around probably at six or seven revolutions per second. And that means that when the ball is, when the rock is released, it's going forward really fast, probably 35 meters per second. That's substantially faster than uh, uh, baseball thrown by um, even the finest of baseball pitchers. More than that, the stones in the Valley of Elah were not normal rocks. They were barium sulfate, which are rocks twice the density of normal stones. If you do the calculations on the ballistic, on the stopping power, of the rock fired from David's sling, it's roughly equal to the stopping power of a 45 millimeter handgun, right? This is an incredibly devastating weapon. Accuracy, we know from uh, historical records that slingers uh, had, experienced slingers could hit um, and maim or serious or, or even kill a target at distances of up to 200 yards. From medieval tapestries, uh, we know that slingers were capable of hitting birds in flight. They're incredibly accurate, right? When David lines up, and he's not 200 yards away from Goliath, he's quite close to Goliath. When he lines up and fires that thing at Goliath, there is, he has every intention and every expectation of being able to hit Goliath at his most vulnerable spot between his eyes. If you go back over the history of ancient warfare, you will find time and time again that slingers were the decisive factor against infantry in one kind of battle, against heavy infantry in one kind of battle um, or another. So what's Goliath? He's heavy infantry. And his expectation 
when he challenges the Israelites to a duel, is that he's going to be fighting another heavy infantryman, right? When he says, come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, the key phrase is, come to me. Come up to me, because we're going to fight hand-to-hand like this. Saul has the same expectation. David says, I want to fight Goliath, and Saul tries to give him his armor, because Saul is thinking, oh, when you say fight Goliath, you mean fight him in hand-to-hand combat, infantry on infantry. But David has absolutely no expectation. No, he's not going to fight him that way. Why would he? He's a shepherd. He spent his entire career using a sling to defend his flock against lions and wolves. That's where his strength lies. So here he is, this shepherd, experienced in the use of a devastating weapon, up against this lumbering giant weighed down by a hundred pounds of armor and these incredibly heavy weapons that are useful only in short-range combat. Goliath is a sitting duck. He doesn't have a chance, right? So why do we keep calling David an underdog and why do we keep referring to his victory as improbable? It's the second piece of this that's important. It's not just that we misunderstand David and his choice of weaponry. It's also that we profoundly misunderstand Goliath. Goliath is not what he seems to be. Um, There's all kinds of hints of this in the biblical text. Um, Things that are, in retrospect, are quite puzzling and don't square with his image as this mighty warrior. So to begin with, the Bible says that Goliath is led onto the valley floor by an attendant. Now that is weird, right? Here is this mighty warrior going, challenging the Israelites to one-on-one combat. Why is he being led by the hand, by some, you know, young boy, presumably, to the point of combat? Secondly, the Bible story uh, makes special note of how slowly Goliath moves. Another odd thing to say when you're describing the mightiest warrior known to man at that point, right? And then there's this whole weird thing about how long it takes Goliath to react to the, to the sight of David. So David's coming down the mountain, and he's clearly not preparing for hand-to-hand combat, right? There is nothing about him that says, I'm about to fight you like this. He's not even carrying a sword. Why does Goliath not react to that? It's as if he's oblivious to what's going on that day. And then there's this strange, that strange comment he makes to David. Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Right? Sticks? David only has one stick. Well, it turns out that there's been a great deal of speculation within the medical community over the years about uh, whether there's something wrong with, fundamentally wrong with Goliath an attempt to make sense of all of those apparent anomalies. There have been many articles written. The first one was in 1960 in the Indiana uh, Medical Journal. And it started a chain of speculation that starts with an explanation for Goliath's height. So Goliath is head and shoulders above all of his peers in that era. And usually when someone is that far out of the norm, there's an explanation for it. So the most common form of giantism Uh, is a condition called acromegaly. And acromegaly is caused by a benign tumor on your uh, pituitary gland that causes an overproduction of human growth hormone. And throughout history, many of the most famous giants have all had acromegaly. So the tallest person of all time was a guy named Robert Wadlow, who was still growing when he died at the age of 24, and he was 8 foot 11. 
he had acromegaly. Do you remember the wrestler Andre the Giant, famous? He had acromegaly. There's even speculation that uh, Abraham Lincoln had acromegaly. Anyone who's unusually tall, that's the first uh, explanation we come up with. And acromegaly has a very distinct set of side effects associated with it, principally having to do with uh, vision. Uh, The pituitary tumor, as it grows, often starts to compress the visual nerves in your brain, with the result that people with acromegaly have either uh, double vision or they are profoundly nearsighted. So when, we, when people have started to speculate about what might have been wrong with Goliath, they said, wait a minute, he looks and sounds an awful lot like someone who has acromegaly. And that would also explain so much of what was strange about his behavior that day. Right? Why does he move so slowly and have to be escorted down into the valley floor by an attendant? Because he can't make his way on his own. Right? Why is he so strangely oblivious to David? that he doesn't understand that David's not going to fight him until the very last moment because he can't see him, right? When he says, come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, the phrase come to me is a hint also of his vulnerability. Come to me because I can't see you, right? And then there's, uh, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? He sees two sticks when David has only one. So the Israelites up on the mountain ridge looking down on him thought he was this extraordinarily powerful foe. What they didn't understand was that the very thing that was the source of his apparent strength was also the source of his greatest weakness. And there is, I think, in that a very important lesson for all of us. Giants are not as strong and powerful as they seem. And sometimes the shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. And there you have it, Malcolm Gladwell's take on David and Goliath. I might add a little bit on my take, which is that David was an obedient servant to God, and so he had God on his side too. The David and Goliath story, Malcolm Gladwell's take, a celebration of National Bible Week all week long, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. Jamel McGee was the brand new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down. Starting with Jamel. February 8th, 2006 was the day that forever changed my life. February 8th, 2006, really just another day for me. All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son. All I wanted on that day was another conviction. So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good. I had caught a guy with some crack 
He knew a guy with some more crack, so he made a phone call. So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone. So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told. One guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm going to make sure he has something to do with it. So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope. I ain't got no dope. It ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up. How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible? Trial? He's going to take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's going to take it to trial? I would have wasted my time. Well, I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do. So I told my story, and I got my conviction. And Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel and what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close behind him. Um, I felt like I had lost everything. There was nothing else that mattered at this point. So my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him. Jamel continued to battle with his demons. So <clears throat> after battling with these, these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out, okay? Because I don't want to hear them. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get this thought out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice. Before it even happened, I had a choice. But I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails. My decisions led me there. So <clears throat> I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way. I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years. So I need something different. I got a son. I want to see him. I want to be able to raise him. I want to be a part of his life. So I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell, and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I was like, you know what, God? I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I want to live every day after this as if I'm at home. So I got up that morning. My first thing to do was speak to somebody which was very hard for me to do. And I came out and I was just like, all right, hey. First person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy, who is this? Like, but I didn't care at that point what nobody thought. Because I said I was gonna go through with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna adapt this change into my life. I'm gonna do something different. Here's Jamel on what happened shortly after his heart changed. I go to work this one morning and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the council office and he was like, the fax machine beeped and he handed me the paper and it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned and I had to leave the premises immediately. So if y'all didn't catch that, we can try all we want to. 
It just don't work that way. It just won't work. God has the say-so. He has the ultimate plan. He did that. He, me letting that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go. Jamel served four years of his 10-year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free. So February of 2008, I get caught with crack, heroin, and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime. Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys. Gone. Because they were worried about their careers. Rightly so. My family, having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor. Because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, yeah, you do. I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I, I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me, to finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, whoo, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> I remember thinking like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. Like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus? So we knelt down there in his office and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said, amen. I was bawling and I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man. There's like a list. There's got to be a list of things I can do. Give me a list and I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible. That's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, oh, I don't know if you ever read that thing, pastor, but it's kind of, it's kind of boring. He's like, no, man, God did something in you today. He gave me a, a Bible that was a little easier to read for me from what I grew up in, and I started reading. I was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about Jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me. And the longer I was away from police work, the less I felt bad I got caught and the more I felt bad for what I had done. So I went to the FBI and I said, look, I want to right my wrongs. So I sat down, they put a, a stack of uh, reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need, to te- we need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. And I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case. It's a bad case. And this is a heck of a story. I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories. We return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January 09, Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. And in February of 09, Jamel was set free. A switch. But the story does not stop there. 2010, August, I get out. So I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there, and he says, we're having this thing in August of 11 called Hoops, Hip Hop, and Hot Dogs, H3. So I said, I want to be a part of that. So I'm standing in Broadway Park, like, okay, where are the people that I need to be reconciled with? Bring them, Lord. Bring them, Lord. Benton Harbor is a small town, by the way, maybe a little too small. Here's Jamel on what happened that day in August 2011. I got out. Um, I got to meet my son for the first time. Um, and he wanted to go to this park. It was, he's seen a lot of people standing out there. So I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. Walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, I thought I seen Andrew in, up under the pavilion. I'm like, no, nah, that can't be him. Not in Broadway Park. And he turned around and I'm like, yeah, that's him. In my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him, get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline, stuck out my hands. I said, hey, you remember me? And he said, yeah, and when he said it, I squeezed him. And in my mind was two things. It was myself again telling me to hit him, hit him. What are you waiting on? You're taking too long, hit him. Then God was like, hey, <laughs> God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way. I got this. Step out of my way. Let me avenge this for you. I got this. I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him. <laughs> hit him. And my son was right there, and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go, and I walked away. And each step I walked away, I felt lighter, I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm gonna leave that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it, I'll never see him again anyway. What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison. 
So I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life, where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before, and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises or they went out and got jobs with uh, a community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? <laughs> one day, Miss Princella comes down because she runs Jobs for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I want to introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, I said, no, I know the street name. I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. <laughs> God's funny, right? <laughs> so I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like? Ooh. Yeah, it was like um, she came over and was, I was sitting in class, everybody had a mentor, and she was like, yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, yeah, God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor, mentee, and um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentoring. I'm like, okay, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins, and I'm like, no. <laughs> no way. There's no way I'm doing that. Jamel wasn't finished. She was like, okay, fine, we'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Miss P. That was my decision. Let me pray on that real fast. Because I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision. So I wanted to be God's decision. So I prayed and I opened my eyes and there was a book on my desk and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words and it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident this is the path you want me to take. I'm going to take it. All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives, and it's not just Christians, it's Jews, it's Muslims. Because Sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride, men particularly, women too, pride, the thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said, that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. How you could have left that out of this story, which, by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it, it was covered. And this was left out, this prayer. God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring, a guy who had only been referred to as Zuki. So we sit down. I say, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in the city of Benton Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. I'm like, what is this dude smiling at This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. 
And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and I just went to apologize and do, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance. I'm so sorry. He said, I know. And he was like offended. I know. I said, dude, there's got to be something I can do. He's like, no, 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 it's over. It's over. You were sorry then and I trusted that. And I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore. It's forgiven. It's done. I was like, dude, can we, can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is, this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray? <laughs> He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes. And we prayed that. And he got up. We said amen. He got up and walked out because he had an appointment to get to. And I went in the back and cried like a child because I felt forgiven. <laughs> and then I was, we were meeting every week. And I was like, yo, bro, we, we need an employee in the cafe. And you need a job. Uh, are you, do uh, you need a job? He's like, yeah, I need a job. You know I need a job. I said, well, how about this? Because what if, what if I hire you? Or what if we hire you? And, and you'd be, and are you a good worker? Because if I've got to write you up, Things are already tense enough, you know, like, ah. <laughs> and he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude's smile is like, it breaks down all board. He's like, no, nah, man, no, nah, I got you, I got you. Mm-hmm. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I'd never seen somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for, for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure. Because I don't want to be the cash register someday and then just get the big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, bro, no. We're good. And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, and true reconciliation by two guys who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. And that he was able to say to this guy, it's over, it's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well, let's all make beauty from ashes. If this story can teach us one thing, it's possible. And so we're so happy to have brought you Andrew's story, Jamel's story, this story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan. It could be happening all over this country, folks. And if the media would only report the source of so much of this reconciliation, not the fake reconciliation they talk about in the news, this is the real thing. And something tells me God's behind a lot of it. Their stories here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and all week long we're celebrating National Bible Week. FDR in 1941 made it so. The week of Thanksgiving every year since then has been National Bible Week. Not a lot of media are celebrating that. We are in our own unique way. And all this week, our segments are sponsored by the folks at Essentials in Education and the Stetson Family Office who are interested in two big subjects that we work together on, and that is constitutional literacy and Bible literacy. And you don't have to be a believer to understand the impact of the Bible on Western civilization and the world. And so all week long, we're going to be talking about that. And tonight, a terrific story about the Bible and its influence on a man who you all know, and many of you include him in the top two or three as a national hero. And indeed, we're talking about Martin Luther King. And in the media, you often hear about Dr. King. Tonight, you're going to hear from Reverend King. And Reverend King, well, he thought the Bible was a pretty relevant book in the 20th century and quoted from it often. And on the day before he died in Memphis, and by the way, we broadcast just an hour south of Memphis, but the day before he was to be assassinated, he gave a speech in Memphis, well, that would be his last, his last sermon. And there were a lot of death threats. And King was warned not to come, but he came anyway. And he wanted desperately to give a sermon. And the subject, well, straight out of the Bible, the Good Samaritan. Let's take a listen. One day a man came to Jesus. And he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life points he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on the dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. He talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priests passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder 
whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. And you know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And there it is, Martin Luther King, the night before he's assassinated. By the way, he would end up predicting his own death, his own imminent death in this very same speech. Again, a speech you won't hear anywhere else. It's celebrating National Bible Week all week long. You just heard the great Reverend Martin Luther King, his final words to the people of Memphis in a church, a sermon talking about, of all things, the Bible and the Good Samaritan. Martin Luther King's story, the story of the Bible and Western civilization and its impact all week long here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love having authors on the show. And today we have Bruce Feiler, who writes the This Life column for the Sunday New York Times. He's also the author of six consecutive New York Times bestsellers. He's known for writing about what he's experienced in his new book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us, is no exception. Yeah, I'm the look. I'm the I'm the father of soon to be a 13 year old identical girls. Uh, I have a working wife, and that means I spend a tremendous amount of time in my life talking about what we all talk about, which is the changing roles of men and women. So, like everybody else, I'm sort of trying to figure out uh, the rules of relationships. But so much of our contemporary dialogue is about you know technology and what's happening at the moment. But I spent a lot of time in the ancient world, right? I've written, you know, four books about the ancient world, Walking the Bible and Abraham. And I kept thinking, is there nothing from the past uh, that can't be uh, preserved as we talk about this today? Are we throwing out all the old rules? So my wife was on a business trip to Rome, and we decided to bring the girls along. At the time, they must have been about eight. And I'm the one who had the genius idea that, Let's take them on day one, jet-lagged, exhausted, to the Vatican, right? See some art, get some culture. <laughs> it did not go very well. Like, oh, our feet hurt, and why are there carpets on the wall, and why are all these naked statues here? So I'm like, come on, girls, we're going to go to the Sistine Chapel. So I push them, take them into the middle of the Sistine Chapel. I'm like, look up. I'm going to blow your mind. And they look up, and one of my daughters looks at that image that you mentioned. And by the way, that's an iconic image for a ton of reasons, not least to which no one had really shown God in his full body, the beard, all of that was actually new from uh, Michelangelo. And she looks up and she says, well, why are there only men in that picture? I was like, oh my word, uh, what am I in for? And then my other daughter looks up and says, well, wait a minute, is that, who is that under God's arm? Is that Eve? And I have to say, my mother is an art teacher, but I had never really noticed that about that figure before. And that's when I realized, oh, my gosh, one story has been at the center of men and women and relationships for 3,000 years, right? And for some, you know, it may be fact, for some, it may be science, whatever it is, this story has been there. And what if I look at this story and go back sort of on this great scavenger hunt across time, looking at the story of Adam and Eve, and maybe it can tell us, as crazy as it seems, something about relationships today. And you took your time on this book, as you always do, Bruce, and we love that. And it sounds like you had a heck of a time telling the story. You did a lot of traveling and a lot of geographic travel, but also time travel. Talk about both of those things. Well, I mentioned earlier that I had done Walking the Bible. And, and, and Walking the Bible, and I did it twice, once for the book and once for the PBS series. Walking the Bible was sort of a journey across um, a space, if you will, but in the same time period. As you know, I retraced the, the five books until I climbed Mount Ararat in, uh, in western, uh, excuse me, in eastern Turkey, looking for Noah's Ark. I crossed the Red Sea. Um, I climbed uh, Mount Sinai. I tasted manna. And, but all of that was going to places in the ancient world, reading the stories and seeing what they could tell us today. It was pretty clear that there were not that many places to go <laughs> regarding Adam and Eve uh, in the ancient world. I've actually been to the Garden of Eden in Iraq, um, and that story is recounted in the first love story. Um, so, but what really allowed me to sort of, because I'm an, I'm really an adventure person. I'm an, I'm an experientialist, I like to say, because I like to go places. And so what really 
um, unlocked it was realizing that this story, every significant artistic and creative figure in history, and every generation has grappled with this story. So when I realized I could go to Jerusalem, I could go to the Sistine Chapel, I could go to the Galapagos, where even Darwin confronted uh, this story. I could go in the footsteps of Milton in London with Paradise Lost. I could go to Hollywood, where Mae West made this incredible, iconic rendition of Adam and Eve on radio that was totally scandalous in the 1920s. And so I, basically, this was a journey, not just across space, but also across time, looking at how this story has been reimagined by every generation. And by looking at the story, we can really understand the history of love and that legacy that we all carry today. Let's talk about that original story in the Old Testament, that Adam and Eve story, and how, how you believe that story got altered by man over time, by men over time. So the first thing to say about the story of Adam and Eve is that it's not one story. It's actually two stories. And the second story in some ways has the iconic uh, incidents that we think about with Adam and Eve. We have that's the creation of of Eve from the rib of Adam, although it's not really the rib. It's actually the side. Um, it, that's got this scene with the apple, but it's not really an apple. It's just called the fruit. That's got the, the scene where they're kicked out of Eden, but they're not really kicked out because God still extends his love, Cain and Abel, and onward. And that's the story that most of us think about. But there's actually an earlier story in Genesis 1 where God creates man and woman in a, in a sort of a non-gendered, uh, unified creation and then divides them in two. And the reason that's important is in the first story, they begin with total equality. Uh, what's true for the man is also true for the woman. That's been lost over time for a lot of reasons, but the primary reason is basically organized religion got a hold of the story. And by organized religion, I should say, I mean men got a hold of the story and kind of used the story as a way to dump on Eve. I, I think of this story as uh, of poor Adam and Eve. They are victims of the greatest character assassination the world has ever known. And basically, they, you know, sort of history basically me tooed Eve and sort of made her the scapegoat. And what happened over time is that first artists and then creative people, Michelangelo, uh, I mentioned John Milton, uh, Mary Shelley, and Frankenstein, and then the modern you know, women's movement kind of reclaimed Eve and kind of restored her to the role. Because kind of one of the, one of the kind of things that always fascinates me about, about contemporary religion is, is that it was controlled by men and they used it to, to, to basically subjugate women. But now, by every measure, women are more religious than men. And the only way that was going to happen was for women to basically reclaim the story and see themselves in the story, and that began with Adam and Eve. So basically, I, I see this as the original story, which has this equality, centuries of subjugation of women um, uh, at the hands of organized religion, and then a slow, centuries-long reclaiming of the story so that Adam and Eve can stand as equals today, and as I sort of alluded to earlier, kind of in critical role models for how we might relate to each other at this time, this kind of you know, challenging time, and how men and women relate to each other. Now, a lot of folks don't think the Adam and Eve story started too well. You've already talked about the two stories even more, but a lot of people don't think it ended well. Talk about the ending, because in the end, I think this is what you focus on. It's a magnificent story. Isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. I, I think that one of the, you know, one of the things I see in the story, um, I, I refer to it as constancy. I, I see Adam and Eve starting together. I mentioned earlier that they were created together. 
then they separate, right? Eve is not happy. She's whether you know she's bored, she's frustrated, whatever it might be. She goes off into uh, she goes off into the garden and she tastes of the fruit. And at that moment, she can separate if she wants, right? Milton has a great scene in uh, in Paradise Lost where Eve, upon eating the fruit, says, uh, "Oh my gosh, I have all the power. This would be an incredible win for women, the female sex, if I keep this power to myself." And then she says, oh, but I love Adam so much. I miss him. I can't live without him. So she goes back. I see that as a separation and then a returning, okay? And then um, what does Adam do? He has this choice. Should he eat or should he not eat? He knows pretty well. He knows very well that he's not supposed to do this, but he's like, he chooses love, right? He chooses Eve over God, so to speak. He eats too, another coming together. And then they're kicked out of Eden, okay? At this moment, they could separate. The story could, like, die right there. But they stick together. They have a, they have a child. Then they have a second child. So they have Cain and Abel. So, you know, we, we should remember, they're not just the first lovers and the first couple and the first love story, as the title of my book suggests, but they're also the first parents. Um, that doesn't go very well, right? One of their children kills the other. They could be separated. And, in fact, there is a period of separation uh, the text is very clear on this, but they come back together, they reconcile, and they have a third son, Seth, and it's that Seth that goes on to populate the human line and sort of get the biblical story going. That is a story of separation coming back together, separation coming back together, that I think that they deserve credit for and is an incredible inspiration because as anybody, anybody who's been in a relationship longer than a weekend knows it doesn't always go well. And this act of reconciliation is something I think we can all learn from today. And when we come back, more with Bruce Feiler, his terrific book, one of the great or the greatest love story ever told, the first love story, Adam, Eve, and us, here on Our American Stories. Turn with Bruce Feiler and his new book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us. And Bruce, I want to quote from the book. The story of Adam and Eve has a similar oscillating quality, especially in the chords of the birth of their third child. Their lives contain a particular quality of love that's rarely sung out loud, duration. Students of infatuation, that period of intense awareness and obsessive immersion that often characterizes the initial phase of relationship, say it lasts a matter of months. And you go on to then talk about this difference between the infatuation phase and, of course, constancy. You cite Dorothy Tenoff. Who is she and why did you look at her work along with Helen Fisher? Well, I think that, you know, Dorothy Tennant back in the 1970s was the first person to write about that period of titillation and how 
kind of infatuation and how it, it's a it's a short-term thing, and then it passes in, as Alan Fisher has said, into a kind of a, a kind of a long-term uh, give and take. I mean, Alan, uh, Helen Fisher said something quite interesting to me. She's an anthropologist who sort of put people in brain scan machines to to look at, at who've been in long-term relationships, and 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 she talked about 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 how the people who were in successful relationships learn to have give and take, learn that they are in a, a shared story, um, if you will. And I think that what matters here about this, so my book is called The First Love Story, right? And I think that um, I, I feel in a profound way that Adam and Eve introduced the idea of love into the Western world. It doesn't begin in you know France, as we were told, or the Middle Ages, or even in Greece, as some people say. It begins in the Hebrew Bible. And yet the Bible does not get credit for this, and people don't think of this as a love story. I think the reason that we don't is not because we misidentify the story, but because we misidentify what love is, right? So the modern kind of love story, the Hollywood love story, the love song, uh, the pop song, that's three-minute love story, is usually about that period of the tingles, right? It's about that period of self-discovery and infatuation when the chemicals are going crazy and you think everything is perfect before you, you realize that love is something different, right? So love is a long-term story. And you mentioned the word oscillation when you were reading that passage. So I, you know, this may take me a second to unfold, but a couple of years ago, I met some psychologists at Emory who had done research into how children understand themselves. And basically what they found is that children who understand uh, their family history, which is to say they give kids a, a 21 question survey of do you know where your grandparents were born? Do you know a relative who had cancer? Do you have, do you know what happened when your parents met and what was happening around the time of your birth? And the children who answered these questions better had a higher degree of, of self-confidence and self-esteem and a belief that they could control the world around them. And when I asked uh, the psychologists who did this study, one of them is Marshall Duke, I asked Marshall why this would be the case he said that there are three types of family narratives. There's what they call an ascending narrative. You know, we started out with nothing, we worked hard, we have a lot. There's a descending narrative. We had a lot, then there was a war or a recession or a storm, and we lost it all. Or there's what they call an oscillating narrative with ups and downs, with swings, with natural rhythms of success and failure. Your grandfather came here. He worked very hard. Um, he, his, uh, but then his house burned down. His daughter was the first woman in the family to go to college. Then she got breast cancer. So children who understand that their, that their, the history, their lives, their families have an oscillating narrative understand that when they hit bumps in the road, that they can get through them. I wrote about this in, in the New York Times in a piece called The Stories That Bind Us. And, you know, I've written 15 books and you know, hundreds of newspaper and magazine articles. It's the thing that most went viral um, in my entire writing career as people found themselves in this story. And that's why I used that word oscillating in the conjunction with Adam and Eve, because the story is oscillating. It's not an ascending narrative of they meet and it's all so wonderful and they go, you know, and there were some, you know, kooky little things and then they got to the altar and lived happily ever after. That's not what happened to Adam and Eve, and that's not what happens to any good relationship. Indeed, I want to quote further, quote, Adam and Eve asserted by their very actions that love is not just union. It is reunion. It includes, by its very endurance, some element of choice. 
and it encompasses by its very survival the necessity of progress. There is no love without time, and there is no love without respect for the other. And to have that, you must see the other not as higher or as lower. You must see the other as your equal. It's beautiful words, and that's straight out of the first real biblical story of love. And yet, and yet we don't see it that way. And, and you, you brought up uh, the Cain and Abel moment, which I think is an equally powerful thing. Right? This is a deeply troubling, disturbing, sad, grief-stricken moment, right? One of their children has murdered the other child. And I, I you know, suggest if, you, you know, if, we, if we ask for a show of hands of anyone listening to this conversation of what losing a child does to a relationship, most people would say that it destroys the relationship. And what's fascinating is that that turns out not to be true. Uh, I spoke to a scholar who looked at 25,000 families who had lost children in the Northwest, including a lot who'd lost them in the Mount St. Helens volcano. And uh, it, it turned out that only a handful of them broke up. And when I asked her why, she said, because each party is grief-stricken after the loss of a child, and they're tending themselves, and they're so busy tending themselves that they often are not good at tending the other person. But after a while, they look across the table, and they realize the only person who can understand what they're going through is sitting right across from them. And she used this beautiful language. She said that basically what they do is they write a new chapter in their lives. And that's really what I learned from all this time with Adam and Eve, which is that love is a story we tell with another person. It's co-creation through co-narration. I think of the scene in Hamilton uh, when, let's remember what happened, when the second act of Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton has had an affair on Eliza, and they are estranged, and then their son, Philip, is killed in a duel. And the most beautiful song, to my ear, in the entire musical is, is what happens after. It's called It's Quiet Uptown. The two of them, they are estranged, they come together, they start taking long walks. They go into the garden. <laughs> they move uptown. And they realize in the end that they're the only ones who can understand. And there's this beautiful um, thing at the end of that song where the cast sings, you know, forgiveness. Can you imagine? I mean, losing a child is unimaginable. And the only thing that is a big enough response is an act of imagination. And that's what I see Adam and Eve doing. And that's what I see just speaking to, as I said, any of us in a relationship, I'll be married 15 years uh, this summer, and my relationship, like everybody I know, requires this constant act of imagination of, it's not just a commitment that you make, it's a stream of commitment, and, you know, a healing of breaches, and that's a skill that any long-term relationship uh, demands. Indeed. In fact, uh, one of the great movies of the 80s was about, well, the opposite of what you just said. It was Ordinary People, if you remember, based on the book. And that couple broke apart because of the death of his son, um, which, again, that's the outlier. The movie, I think, made it seem as if maybe that was more the norm. Um, but it, it may have resonated for that individual and particular family. And when we come back, more with Bruce Filer, the first love story, Adam, Eve, and us here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to Our American Network and sign up for our newsletter. It's just an email, folks. You send us the email, we'll send you our five best stories of the week in transcript form and a link to the podcast as well. 
This is Lee Habib. More with Bruce Feiler after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our conversation with Bruce Feiler, author of the first love story, Adam, Eve, and Us. And it's available on Amazon.com. Go there, pick it up. You won't put this book down. You take a walk through literary history, too, Bruce, and you mentioned Milton before, and I don't know how we can understand literary history without reading the Bible and knowing it, but one story caught my attention, and it was Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein, and it was, I guess, her rebuttal to Adam and Eve in a way? Well, first of all, um, am I the last person who knew that Frankenstein was an Adam and Eve story? But Frankenstein is an Adam and Eve story, right? So, you know, it's interesting. We know the origin story of that, right? You've got Byron, you've got Shelley, uh, who was having this relationship with um, Mary. She wasn't Shelley yet, but Mary Shelley, and they all end up... uh, you know, in, in, uh, by Lake Geneva, and it's a stormy night, they say, let's all tell ghost stories. And, uh, it was not the most successful parlor game, but it's out of that that Frankenstein came. And so what is the story of Frankenstein? You've got Dr. Frankenstein. So, um, he creates this new being. So Dr. Frankenstein, in the Adam and Eve of it all, is God. And the monster, if you will, is, if that's what we want to call him, is Adam. And then what happens is, is that the monster, you know, gets estranged from Dr. Frankenstein and is frustrated, and he goes running off into the Alps. And so what he's in the Alps, and they need him to be able to communicate with Dr. Frankenstein. So he, begin, he, he observes this couple in a house, and what is happening? The couple, um, the caretaker is reading to the patient, uh, Paradise Lost. So the monster overhears and learns to speak English by listening to Paradise Lost, which, by the way, may not be the best way (laughs) to learn basic grammar, but it's a pretty good way to learn eloquent English, right? So, and then, so the monster is listening to the creature, whatever you want to call him, is listening to this and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm Adam. And so the monster goes traipsing back to Dr. Frankenstein and says, make me a woman. I'm Adam. I'm alone, right? That's the key thing in the entire story. One of the reasons this story resonates today is that when Adam is by himself, Adam looks up plaintively toward God, and God says, it's not right for humans to be alone. So they're like, so Adam says, God says, I have to make you a companion, and that's where we get Eve from. So the monster says, make me an Eve. And Frankenstein says, well, no, I don't want to do that. Like, it's enough trouble with you already. And so then Frankenstein, the monster begins to sort of start attacking everyone that Dr. Frankenstein loves. And he then says, okay, fine, I'm going to create you this Eve. 
and, and then and and the monster says, "Yeah, we'll go away. We'll go back, basically, you know, into the into the garden of Eden, and it all goes horribly wrong." So it, it's fascinating, and I think what's interesting about that is this is exactly at the moment that science is beginning to take over. Right? Soon we have Darwin. Soon we have sort of the beginning of the decline of the influence of the Bible, and yet this suggests that this story is bigger. Um, I mean, what's bigger than the Bible? It's almost hard to believe anything can be, and yet Adam and Eve transcends even the decline of religion because it's such an iconic human story and basically part of our cultural DNA. Indeed, and by the way, isolation uh, is a is a is a plague on on Americans today and loneliness. And, and I've read this in the Times and the Wall Street Journal. Actually, well, we know what a problem it is in the country, and in in some aspect, you had said it before. You know, God, at least the God we know from the Bible, didn't want us to be alone. And this story is, is a big part of that, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. It's, the, to me, the great insight in the story. Um, and, and that is really profound. We know from, uh, you know, the last 20 years of positive psychology from happiness research that, that happiness is other people, right? And that relationships are central to our well-being. The biggest scourge, as you said, is loneliness, whether it's teen suicide, adult suicide, opioids, you know, technology, isolating us. We know that, that, that loneliness has become a modern health uh, uh, epidemic. And uh, within that, we need relationships. You look at the story. There it is in Genesis 1 where God says it's not right for humans to be alone. God the Bible gets there 3,000 years before modern social science. So if you think that science has basically rendered the Bible moot, you're missing the point. And frankly, if you're the kind of person who thinks the Bible has every answer, I think you're also missing the point. Here's where the Bible, where religion and science talking to each other can give us an even deeper insight into how we all live. Indeed, they're not mutually opposites, and the antagonism proposed between the two, I think, has always been a false construct. Let's talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote. It's one of my favorites. He was writing a letter to his niece, and he wrote this, quote, It is not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on the marriage that will sustain your love. Uh, talk about that quote, because I, I, I thought of it when I was reading your book. Well, that's a, uh, a beautiful thought, and I, I, I think that... <laughs> You know, there was such, for so many years in religion, there was a, there was a <laughs> distinction between, uh, you know, beliefs and deeds. And I, I think what I hear in that that's related there is the act of doing, the act of sustaining the relationship is, is also an act of love. I quote in, in, in the book, as you know, that wonderful scene in, uh, in, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> right? So we've got Tevia and his wife who had had an arranged marriage, shall we not forget? And they want arranged marriage with the matchmaker, 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 make me a match of their daughters. But of course, then the daughters, you know, one by one, want a love match. And it's such a crisis for Tevia. And there's this moment where he goes to his wife and he says, you know, look at the kids, look at our daughters. They're like all talking about love and like, um, uh, what about that? Like, do you love me? And she kind of squawks back, do I love you? What are you talking about? You know, don't bother me. She's like, he's like, do you love me? And, and she says, I did your laundry, I, you know, I, I, ma I made your clothes, I made your bed, I made your food. You know, if, if that's not love, what is? And I, I think that that's great, right? That, that, I was going to say they don't make movies about that, but of course they do make movies about that now because that is what that story is about, that love takes all different forms. And there is sometimes the act, an act of reconciliation, 
which may not be uh, flowers and champagne, you know, an act of, of, of balance, an act of letting each other take the lead. I think that's also great in the Adam and Eve story, right? You know, he, she's created from his rib, but he's the one who clings to her, right? She initiates, he initiates the lovemaking that produces the children, but she gives them their name, and that's the source of power in the ancient world. So there's a wonderful back and forth. There's a wonderful constancy, as we were talking earlier. There's wonderful reconciliation and lots of simple, small wins and small gestures that have kept this relationship alive, basically, for 3,000 years. Indeed. Let's return to where we started at, at the Sistine Chapel. You had a conversation there with an art historian, and it was beautiful. You asked her what we can learn from Adam and Eve, and she said this, quote, that we're made for love, that's what the initial image shows. We're made out of love, and we're made for love. Talk about that. You know, our human, why do we have love? Why do we need love, right? Animals don't have love, um, almost all of them. Uh, but we have it. Why? Because it is valuable to keep people together, to raise families, to create culture, because the family is the backbone of our lives, um, because it's what holds our civilization together, because we might all spin out and do what's best for me, what's best for me, what's best for me. The scourge of individualism is the other side of the loneliness. We all think we can go it alone. and But going alone is challenging. And I think that we have love because it binds people together. It's good for raising children. It's good for our society. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not all roses and champagne as we've been talking. But I think that what this story reminds us is that this is the first human story. All of the stories in the ancient world, they had a God, and a God created humans, or a God and a human. The, the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, is the first book that has a man and a woman with a name with at the, at the origins of the human line. And the fact that there is a story associated with that, and the story itself has ups and downs, reminds us that we need love, that love is difficult, but that when it triumphs, it's good for everybody involved. Indeed, and there was free will in that garden, right? And there were Absolutely. choices and agency. Talk last about both of those things. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm working on a book now. Um, I've been interviewing hundreds of people about their life stories, uh, people who've had transitions and disruptions and reinventions, and I'm doing this thing I call the Life Story Project where I'm gathering stories, and it's really about how we live a meaningful life, and there are what I call the ABCs of meaning. <laughs> the first is agency, and for sure Adam and Eve have that, right? Eve goes off. She eats that fruit. Adam eats that fruit. They, they have consequence. They have those children. They come together and have the third child. There's a lot of agency. That's the A of the ABCs of meaning. The B is belonging, and this relationship is all about belonging, connection, love, and its cause, and something higher than yourself. And I think that that's also here in this story. Not only do they have this relationship with God, but also, in a sense, their higher calling is to make it work, <laughs> is to survive, is to have children, is to come back together in the face of awfulness and have that third child, and he's the one who populates the human line. In the biblical account, none of us would be here if it weren't for that third child, Seth. So it reminds us that we all need the ABCs. We need think agency ourselves, we need relationships, and we need something bigger and higher than ourselves. This is Lee Habib, and we've been talking to Bruce Filer, his terrific book, The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us. Pick it up at Amazon.com. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org 
Sign up for our newsletter. All we need is your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week in transcript form and in audio form. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.